0: In just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's
1: A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
2: Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and hex stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman.
3: I'm Pramita Saha. I'm Claire Maldarelli. So,
2: on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Pervita, what's your tease?
4: Uh, I'm going to tell the fun story of a genius black woman who turned boring old dandruff shampoo into a miracle cure worth millions.
2: Excellent. Wow. Claire, how about your tease?
3: Yes, I'm going to talk about something less exciting, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> That's a bad way to start. Um, I am going to talk about a really really old light bulb. You know what? I
2: I believe in you. I, I think swear you're going to make it thrilling. I'm ready for Thank a you. roller coaster of emotion. My tease um, is that there are tiny frogs that use giant spiders as their bodyguards. It's very cute. That's cool. <laughs> what do we want to start with? Um, Light bulb. Woo! I mean, it's a great okay. idea. Light bulb flicks on. <laughs> we begin. So, Claire, tell yes, us all about illuminate it. Illuminate us.
3: So everyone always asks me what my favorite story I've ever written for PopSci.com is and or I guess all of popular science's various entities. We have so many. Um, and I will say all of my stories are like my children's. Mm-hmm. So I cannot pick. But there is one story that I always use as my favorite. So maybe it actually deep down is my <laughs> favorite. Um This story takes us to the fire station in Livermore, California, where a light bulb hangs in the garage where like all the fire trucks are kept. I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time in fire stations, but the garage is a very important place. And thank you. Yes. And if you ask any of the current or former firefighters at this station, They'll tell you that the light bulb itself is basically an institution. Most people who have worked there at that station will basically tell you that it's been there forever. And that's kind of almost true. According to Tom Brammel, who is a former deputy fire chief for the Livermore-Pleasanton Fire Department, when he began working there in the early 1970s, they'd essentially like swat the light bulb for good luck, but never really thought that much of it. They were just like, here's this old light bulb. It's been here forever. Now we just have to swat it before we go fight fires. Um... That is until 1972, when a local news reporter was hearing stories that the light bulb had been there for decades, and he was like, "How is a light bulb just still glowing for decades and decades?" And he just kept hearing of this this light bulb, and he was like, "Maybe they're all just talking about like the idea of the <laughs> light bulb, but." For sure, the light bulb has been replaced many times. So he did this big like investigation into a light bulb. Now, I would love to just like spend months and months investigating a light bulb. It sounds amazing as like a journalist. This is why we need to
2: support local journalism.
3: (laughs) Who else? else Yes, Rachel. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. So with the help of some scientists, of course, he um, was able to help date the light bulb to the early twentieth century so you might be thinking an old broken light bulb is hanging in the fire department garage like what's its significance the catch is that the light bulb seriously still works today more than a hundred years after it was made it still still turns on and glows it even has its own webcam that you can visit online Um, and to this day despite many studies after this initial 1972 investigation Uh, scientists have yet to pin down exactly why it still works. So here's what they do know. The bulb, and this took me into like a deep dive of light bulbs, and now I have this great appreciation for all light bulbs. Like whenever I turn off my Christmas lights that are still up that I need to put down. And uh, whatever other lights in my house, I'm just like, I appreciate the light bulb. So I hope you will, too. This bulb was made by a company called the Shelby Electric Company, which was a I believe it is now not a company anymore, Um, but it was an Ohio based company established in 1896. And in its heyday, which was like the early 1900s, it was known for creating some of the best products around. Most notably, the company attracted the attention of this guy Adolph Chalet, a French inventor and electrical engineer who eventually moved to Ohio to work at Shelby. And the most significant thing he did was improve the filament, which is the wiring inside the glass that produces the light when electricity runs through it, of this light bulb. And one of the secrets of success was the formula for this filament. So the filament was constructed from a plastic cellulose substance, which is like very, very strong. And when properly essentially baked at the exact right temperature, it becomes almost like pure carbon. So just incredibly strong and intact and like doesn't break down easily. The carbon was so compact and hard that scientists have who have looked at Shelby light bulbs have found that it approaches the hardness of diamond. Whoa. Yeah. And it's, most, and it's like this chemical reaction, essentially, that happens when you bake it. So it's not as strong until you bake it at this like perfect temperature. And mm. Chalet figured this out. And his initial claim at the time was that the new light bulb was 20 percent more efficient and would last 30 percent longer than the bulbs on the market at that time. Now, if I were a customer, I'd be like, <laughs> I'm buying this light bulb for sure and in march 1898 it was declared the quote-unquote best lamp on earth so the lamps that contained this light bulb but just as quickly as the shelby bulbs rose to popularity they stopped being produced and that was mostly because from a profit perspective a light bulb that essentially <laughs> lasts for decades means that no one is going back to Shelby Electric Company to be like, give me some more light bulbs. They're like, no, I turn I'm it on good. every day. <laughs> it's good. It still works. And so those types of bulbs, uh, kind of the companies, Shelby and others that ha- kind of took on this technology, essentially, um, were like, hmm we're gonna restructure how we make our filaments. And quickly bulbs that had filaments that broke down far more easily um, began to take over popularity. Uh, And these are the ones that before LEDs were like the most popular. So you would screw in a light bulb into your lamp and it would last for three months or so, maybe a little longer if you remember to turn the lights off, but that is essentially it so goodbye shelby light bulbs forever essentially now there have been many shelby light bulbs that have stayed working for many many decades and eventually though the filament inside as strong as it is nothing lasts forever right um does break down so there have been like 80 year old light bulbs uh 70 year old light bulbs and all of them have gotten attention, but then eventually they have died out. The one in the Livermore fire station, though, is still functioning. And we researchers... looking at the live
2: webcam right now. <gasps>
3: yes, Rachel, it's <laughs> riveting. It is truly it's... riveting.
2: <laughs> well, and it's even more riveting because it's not a live video, it's a photo that updates. It says every second seconds, thir- but yeah. it seems like every minute. But anyway, that makes it even more fascinating because it's just like once it going to change and the answer is it it never changes i mean i guess periodically there's probably someone in the background but it's just a light bulb that's still burning
3: unless it shuts <laughs> off and then you're witnessing oh history <laughs> imagine being the person
2: who who saw that happen
3: ah! right So, yeah, over the years, um, researchers have known this and um, scientists have always been intrigued by this light bulb in the Livermore fire station. And they know that it is a super strong filament that is, you know, as that like other ones have been broken apart and looked at. And it's like, you know, this diamond like hardness. Um, But. They still believe that there is just something different and special about the Shelby light bulb because every other Shelby bulb has broken down eventually. And so unfortunately, you can't really take it apart, understand it and then be like, oh, this is the answer uh, and then put it back together. Once the filament is taken apart, it's then the light bulb no longer works. And Mm. This light bulb is so beloved that I sure can never see that happening. But they do have a guess as to what um, is kind of making the quote unquote, magic. I feel like that's a bad phrase. We are science people. <laughs> um, but they suspect that the bulb's filament has a perfect vacuum seal that mm. further protects its innards. So essentially, like if it's sealed so tightly and nothing is getting through, then the filament literally can't break down. And that is what they think is happening. So I talked to this guy Tom Brammell, who was the former deputy fire chief at uh the fire station and he will definitely agree with me in saying this that the uh light bulb is essentially like his baby or his child so um he you know of course it's been turned off they try to keep it on forever because first like having a light on in the fire station is super important but then also it just like or it's this light bulb's own, you know, posterity. I guess they like to keep it on all the time, but they have turned it off on occasion. And one of those times um, was that they had were moving from one station to another, um, or one building to another, and so he was put in charge of essentially like carrying his child from <laughs> the old station to the next. And uh, um, when he did, and then he brought it there, and they plugged it in and it literally didn't turn on and he panicked so much and was like, well, this is, this is the end. It has died. We did it. We, (laughs) we broke it. Um, But it turns out that just like the connector, I, I believe like they put it through some like surge protector and everyone who was trying to like figure out whether it had actually broken. Finally, they were like, maybe we should just put in a new surge protector. And when they did that, the light bulb turned right on. So it even bypassed or even lived past all of these other technologies. And it still lights up to this day. And Rachel is watching it right now. Um, yeah. And Thrilling stuff. <laughs> truly. Um, I would say that it has just given me like a, an appreciation for things that last. Mm. And um, that maybe we should be creating more things like the Shelby light bulb where you actually don't need to buy a light bulb every couple of months.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, it's not surprising, but it is such a bummer that the reason they stopped making them this way is like, yeah, because we weren't selling enough light bulbs. It also, I mean, listeners should definitely look up the live cam. It is definitely, it is an old-fashioned light bulb. It's not giving off like super high-powered light. It won't meet all your light bulb needs, but it would be like aesthetic. You'd have it as like your cute industrial lighting, and it would last forever. That would be great.
3: Yes, exactly. I agree. I would love to have it in my apartment as like my my nightlight that I yeah. go back to. Oh, yeah. yeah perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Has it been like recreated anywhere else, or I guess it's still a bit of a magical mystery as you said
3: yeah it's totally a mystery I mean there have been other Shelby bulbs that have eventually burnt out like 80 year old ones um, but uh all of those seem to like eventually break down so they're like why is this one not breaking down it must be this like perfect seal that wasn't even intentional by Shelby their intention was to create like a filament that was super hard that wouldn't break down but in making this like perfect seal around it they kind of created like another layer of protection mm. um i wonder if when it
2: finally dies assuming it doesn't just outlive all of us um i wonder if they'll entrust it to an expert to do like a post-mortem and maybe we can figure out what was so special about it
3: oh most definitely there are a ton of physicists that are like obsessed with this light bulb i bet you there is <laughs> like a list of people who are like if this dies, it's mine. <laughs> or like, <laughs> I have ideas for it. <laughs> I have a grant written up.
2: <laughs> They're ready to go. Yeah. Well, it, I I hope that the light bulb uh, keeps going strong. But um, that is perhaps an exciting science story to look forward to uh, when it when it finally gives out.
3: Yes, definitely. I want to be one of the reporters that are there like
2: being on like, the scene, on Camped the scene, out, waiting for it to yes. happen.
3: <laughs> yes,
2: I wonder if they'll like. Will it start to dim? I can just see it becoming like an a, an event. If they're like, "Oh, it, she seems like she's gonna go any day now,"
3: <laughs> it's flickering. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back
0: with more facts. in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: Okay, we're back. And uh, Prabita talk to me about hair. Yay. <laughs>
4: um yeah I think hair is in a lot of people's minds right now um the stress of the pandemic and everything else in life uh people have been you know reporting like hair loss, gray hairs, early gray hairs. I know I can attest to that um but this story is a little more different uh it goes back you know more than hundred fifty years um and uh the exact year is eighteen sixty seven so uh, we're going to talk about um, this great, great woman, and inventor named Madam C. J. Walker, uh, who was born as Sarah Breedlove uh, in a rural Louisiana town on the Mississippi River. Uh, her parents were poor but hardworking. They got paid pennies for tending to the same cotton plantation that they'd been enslaved at in the early 1800s. So Sarah had no formal education. She took on a blue collar job as a laundress when she was very young, then got married, had a child, and moved to St. Louis, where she started working around barber shops. Um, Now this was the late 1800s, and she learned that uh, you know hair loss was quite common, uh, especially among Black women, um, for multiple different reasons, but in part because of poor access to clean water for washing and shampooing, uh, lack of nutrition in their diets, and increased exposure to chemicals um, in the manual jobs that they had to work. Uh, And Sarah herself was losing giant chunks of hair, um, probably because of the chemicals she was around when she was a laundress. Um, And she was really embarrassed about this. She uh, refused to just you know, wrap her hair and cover it up. She wanted an actual solution. Um, So at the time, there were uh, a lot of pharmaceutical companies, uh, especially big ones like Johnson and Johnson, who were kind of catering to this growing population of people who were losing hair. Um, But they kind of took advantage of black women. And instead of Making products that were actually treating hair loss, they instead made formulas that were more focused on, like, relaxing and straightening hair. And they kind of sold that as hair growth because technically it makes your hair longer. Um, But Sarah, she needed something that would reverse baldness and actually promote better health. Um, So like any good entrepreneur, she started networking And uh, at the time, you know, the World's Fairs were a big, big hub of science and innovation. So she went to her local uh, World's Fair in 1904, and um, she met a black hair care specialist um, and began using her treatment. And that worked. Like, if you go back and look at some of these black and white photos of um, Sarah, you could you can see, like, the flash shining off of her curls. Like, it grew back, and it grew back with a vengeance. Um, So Sarah herself became a door-to-door salesperson um, for these hair products. Uh, But at the same time, she kind of began scheming. Um, She became friends with some local pharmacists and chemists, and she learned how to create her own topical formulas. Um, and then, you know, as any good self-taught scientist without, without a lab would do, she began testing those formulas on herself. So by 1906, uh, Sarah had remarried and changed her name to Madam C.J. Walker, which is a pretty epic name for a yeah, company absolutely. founder. And uh, she started selling her own wonderful hair grower. That's the exact term. Um, in her new city of Denver, Colorado. Um, Denver didn't have a very big black population um, at the beginning of the 1900s. So it was still kind of a little, you know, grassroots, door-to-door kind of company. Um, But she still caught the notice of uh, the black kind of hair care experts across the country including her own uh mentors that she met at the world fair um so uh these um these original experts they uh were pretty pissed that um she had started creating her own product they said that she had plagiarized them but in reality like all of these uh all of these sellers were kind of using the same ingredients that had been used for hundreds of years to treat dandruff and other like scalp conditions. Um, And two of those big ingredients are uh, sulfur, which, you know, very ever present in the environment and uh, petrolatum, which is, um, it's kind of like, huh?
3: Isn't it Vaseline?
4: Yeah. She did mix in like a bit of coconut oil in there. Um, but again, like this secret formula that she had, it was time tested. It was classic, but she just knew how to market it really well. Um, so she started growing her business out of Denver and then kind of gravitated back South. Uh, this was the time when like train travel was really, was really kicking off in the U S so um, she chose – like, she strategically chose cities around, uh, like, the big train lines and um, started building her base there. And again, very specifically for black women. Like, that's that's exactly um, who she was selling her product to, who she was trying to, you know, like, find remedies for. And it worked. Like, people – People loved her product. She started going overseas to, like, the Caribbean, to Haiti and all. Um, and, like, within five years' time, she was, like, she was a multimillionaire, which was huge, first of all, in the early 1900s, when you're not a person who comes from wealth and also you're a black woman um, who was born to, you know, sharecroppers, and um, so yeah, her, her product is still, um, like if you go and look at, you know, some of the shampoos and many of the hair products on your shelf, they probably include those same ingredients, um, sulfur and petrolatum, but, uh, her products are also still being sold, um, you know, like 150 years later and, um, she She went on to not only continue this business but also like fund a lot of other black entrepreneurs in the early nineteen hundreds um so huge success story wonderful hair grower sounds so much better than like dand of treatment um and i would <laughs> i think I would uh buy that as well and um enjoy it but
3: uh yeah. That's cool, yeah. I'm always fascinated by hair care products. Um, There's just so many on the market, and (laughs) like finding one that works for you is amazing. (laughs) And then you use it forever. I think I've literally been using the same shampoo for 15 years because I refuse. That's pretty good. I've
4: heard like such and probably none of them scientific. I've heard such varying advice from, like, people at the salon about how you're supposed to – some say, like, you stick to the tried and and tested product, um, but others, like, say you should switch on and off to, like, give your hair, I don't know, like, different experiences. But, um, yeah, I don't think anyone's truly nailed it. Um, The one – Uh, condition like I see a lot of good conversation around today is uh, alopecia. And uh, like, I do wonder if there is, I think there are higher rates of alopecia among black women as well, in part because of like the heavy um, chemical treatments used for relaxing hair and such. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, I was wondering, Like, if um, Madam CJ's treatment, like, if women who were experiencing alopecia were, um, you know, like, kind of depending on her product. But I don't – it wouldn't have quite worked because I think it's also – it's, like, also an immune-related condition. So, like, you have to actually treat it with, like, steroids and such. It's not as simple as, like, changing up how you wash your hair or – Putting a mask in it. So,
2: yeah. No, it's so, it's such an interesting sphere of industry. And, like, you know, obviously, like any, like basically any other uh, realm of product, like, however much research there's been done on it, there has almost certainly been less research done specifically on um, how it affects people who are not extremely Caucasian. Um, and, yeah, I mean I've been thinking about this a lot because um we do a lot of research on the Dyson hair care products for like our annual best of what's new awards because they do create like really weird and innovative beauty tools in a space that like doesn't see a lot of actual innovation. And one of the things that I'm always struck by is just like they put so much R and D into just understanding hair. And every time I talk to an engineer from Dyson, they're like, We had to do this because we went looking for like Surely, hair experts must have already done all of these tests, and they were like, "It didn't exist. <laughs> like everything's just made up." And that's not to say that they're the only company making good research-based hair tools, but like, I do think that that is kind of true. That like, like a lot of the beauty industry, um, the the consumer products are like, eh. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's so surprising because hair is. Like, healthy hair is so valued. Um, Right. And like Claire said, there's so many, there's so much focus on different hair products. But, yeah, there's nothing informing it. Again, I would be, I feel like this is a running theme on Weirdest Thing, but I'd be interested to see how much, like, funding for research goes into treating, like, or looking at male pattern baldness versus just, like, understanding general
2: hair. (laughs) Um, And also companies know that what people want is like the latest buzzword. I mean, I've definitely seen – I love reading articles uh, where um, hairstylists are just like, please wash your hair.
3: (laughs) Yes. Because
2: there is the huge – and, you know, everybody's hair is different. And for some people, probably using shampoo as little as possible is genuinely like the key. But like not for everyone. And some people just – need to wash their hair and hairstylists are like please please I beg you
4: well that it. was yeah some of the writing I read on like Madame C.J. Walker's success and one of the best books about it is written by her own I think great-granddaughter who helped revive her product more recently but yeah it says like there hasn't been you know like complete scientific study of like how well the ingredients she chose actually, like, stimulate hair growth. But um, part of it was the treatment included, like, actual not just product but also practices. And because, like, people were buying this, like, shampoo and mask, they were also washing their hair more and, like, massaging their scalps. And so it was – like, it could have been a combination of just, like, better – Hair cleanliness, and
2: I have a little like, scalp massager for when I shampoo my hair. It's great. Ooh, ooh. I need one. You know, I I, it's one. like it can't hurt, and it makes uh, I'm like, you know, more blood. It's always good. Get that, get that blood. <laughs> <laughs> That's more what I think to myself as I scrub my, scrub my poor little head. Um. <laughs> well, anyway, you, you both have great hair, so I'm. Oh, thank you so much. As do you. Mm-hmm. We're just. We're just three gorgeous gals with beautiful (laughs) tresses on the podcast. What can we say? All right, let's take a quick break and then we'll be back with more facts.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Okay, we're
2: back and um, I'm going to talk about tiny frogs. And they're spider friends. So, yeah, I, I came to the story because I, I recently saw one of those, like, not necessarily very reputable screenshots that are, like, sciencefact.com. Um, <laughs> and it was claiming that there are spiders and frogs that are best friends. Um, and I, I lost track of the actual, like, mummified version that I initially saw. But I'm going to send you guys a picture and I'll link to this on popside.com slash because it's very important, I think, to have a visual reference for this very cute story. I sent that in the Zoom chat. I don't know if people actually got it.
1: <laughs> I got it. And I love it. It's like, <laughs> oh,
2: don't talk to me or my son <gasps> ever again. Exactly. What? It is It is literally don't talk to oh me my or my son ever again. <laughs> that okay, is the energy. Even though you said
4: tiny frog, I wasn't
2: prepared for how tiny. Oh my gosh, these frogs are the most tiny. I will get into that. Um, it is really maximum cute factor. Uh, so yes, I had to investigate. And um, thankfully, this delightful fact is true. Though, whether it's fair to call these arachnid and amphibian pairs best friends is an open question, as it always is when we anthropomorphize. But it's probably more accurate to call them like business partners. Um <laughs> which is still cute, because it seems likely that it's a relationship that they both benefit from, um, or what we call mutualism in the world of biology. So what's particularly cool about this phenomenon is that it's not limited to a single species of frog or a single species of spider. It seems that these like mutually beneficial partnerships have developed multiple times. So like there are certain frogs that pair up with certain spiders, but that has happened more than once. It's been seen most often in microhylids, which are a family of nearly 700, generally very tiny frog species. Um, Just to give you an idea, a real whopper of a microhylid species might grow to be three and a half inches long. (laughs) That's like a big boy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Many of them are smaller than an inch and... um, They are very cute and small. So, yeah, since the late 20th century, scientists have found several species of this type of frog uh, that seem to commune with spiders, specifically tarantulas and other big, giant, fuzzy arachnids that are closely related to tarantulas. In 1989, for instance, researchers found a dotted humming frog in Peru sharing a burrow with a local tarantula, despite the fact that the spider was absolutely big enough to eat the tiny amphibian, and was in fact known to sometimes munch on similarly sized frogs. Spiders were even occasionally seen kind of picking up the dotted humming frogs and like mouthing at them, but then they would put them back down. Um, This was especially common uh, for juvenile spiders, and that led experts to the conclusion that there's some kind of chemical signal on the frog's skin that tells spiders not to eat their new buddies. In fact, uh in one experiment I read about, um I'm a little fuzzy on the details, so I'll be vague, but basically they took a spider and a frog that had been seen doing this, and they took just the skin of the frog and put it on a different kind of frog that the spider was known to eat. And when it mouthed at the skin, it was like, oh no, that's a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it stopped. Morbid, but fascinating. Skin graft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just like some light taxidermy in the, yeah. in the research lab. Um, but that could actually hint at how these various species came to coexist in such a strange way. It's now thought that many microchylids have toxins in their skin that make them unpalatable to certain species of spiders. Because the spiders have learned not to eat those species, because remember, sometimes like little baby spiders will be like, oh, I want to eat that. And then they'll be like that. Um, so it, t- it sometimes takes them while to learn, but they learn you don't eat those frogs. Um, and so now those lucky frogs have also learned that hanging around these tarantulas is safe. But then the question is, why would they do it? <laughs> um Even if it is safe for them to hang out, they are definitely an odd couple. Um, Well, the answer is that it's because if you share a room with a giant spider, that spider is going to attack anything that tries to attack you. It can't be sure that a predator isn't going for it or its eggs. So they share these burrows. They basically, they're like literally just like sleeping in like dark little holes together. It'll be just a bunch of tarantulas and these little frogs. And if anything, try to comes at the frogs, the tarantulas will be like, get out of my house (laughs) and they protect the frogs. Um, So some researchers initially kind of suggested that while the frog benefits from the spider's presence, the spider only tolerates the frog or ignores it because since it can't eat it, it's like a that's like a non-entity to me. Um, But others have suggested that there could be something in it for the spiders, too, Frogs can eat parasites and other tiny creatures like ants or fly larvae that are too small for a tarantula to actually get their mouth parts on. Like they, they're too small for them to grab and eat, but um, those little critters can attack and eat a spider's eggs. So while the tarantula is basically a bodyguard, the frog is basically a babysitter. And that is the whole story. That is all the information I have, but I'm really delighted by it. (laughs) That makes sense. Have they seen the frogs do that or it's more
4: of a um, hypothesis?
2: I think that part is still more inferred. It's possible there have been some studies on it. I didn't read any. Um, I think it's more like, you know, we know these frogs are known to eat ants and ants are known to eat the spider's eggs. So it would make sense. And, you know, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that like it doesn't have to be that these animals, that either one of them is, like, making a conscious, like, risk-reward analysis. Like, the frogs probably are a non-entity to the spider. Um, but the fact that the frog may have this small benefit could, like, provide some sort of, like, evolutionary selective reinforcement where, you know, the the tarantulas that are more likely to um be chill with frogs hanging out in their burrow uh, are more likely to survive and so so you get the kind of perpetuation of that behavior
4: yeah i've um i know like a similar parallel in um like eastern screech owls which are very cute you know they they live in like burrows and uh trees and they've been seen to like catch they'll eat snakes but they'll catch blind snakes and like bring them back to their nests live and mm. then similarly they'll like have the snakes just eat any like insects and parasites oh, they have like a garden sorry oh, wow yeah they have like a garden um, snake like <laughs> exactly to yeah keep the nest clean and keep the chicks healthy and then often the snake will just like burrow into the nest and just, you know, live there until the family's gone. So it's not like they turn around and eat it at the end of the season. Um, That's nice. yeah, this reminds me of that, just a tiny bit.
2: Yeah, I like when animals can help each other out, (laughs) especially when they're as cute as these little frogs and tarantulas. Um, But yeah, I love the idea that um, these guys are just like odd couple roommates, and everybody wins, um, and all because these frogs happen to taste kind of bad. <laughs> yeah,
3: I love that. Although I feel like I would not want a snake in my house just to like vacuum the place.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna find a robot vacuum shaped exactly like a snake and I'm
2: not like <laughs> <laughs> that would be, that would actually be very cute. Um, all right, so what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? I like the oldest light bulb. I also like the oldest light bulb.
3: Ah, uh, <laughs> <Claire> yay!
2: <wins>. <laughs> <laughs> the weirdest thing I learned this week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popscye.com weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs, at Popseye.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Fultman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing.
0: Thanks for listening, weirdos.